New Bibles this morning to the book of James, chapter 1. I'm sorry, the book of James, chapter 2, um, from verse 1 to verse 13. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are currently going through a series of sermons through the book of James. Two weeks ago, when, uh, when we preached, when I preached here, um, we went through this passage, and I mentioned two weeks ago that there's so much in it that we don't have time to to unpack everything in one sermon. So we're going through the same passage that we read last uh, two weeks ago, uh, last time I preached here. Um, and we were going to read that passage again, but we will focus predominantly on the second half of the text. But so that we understand the context, the context of what's going on, we will read the entire text from verse 1 to verse 13 of the book of James, chapter 2. If, you, uh, if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, You may find this passage on page number 1011. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. My brothers, show no partiality. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps a whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty." For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise your name for the revelation that you give us of yourself. Father, we praise you for speaking to us through your word. Oh, Lord, we desire to hear from you afresh. We desire to hear your word for our hearts, so we ask that you would open our hearts, open our ability to hear well. We pray this for your glory and honor. We pray this in the name of Christ, and we pray this through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit who is among us. We pray this for your glory. Amen. Friends, two weeks ago I mentioned that James is addressing a particular sin in the life of of the people, of the believers, of the church to whom, the churches to whom he's writing, the sin of partiality, the sin of of 
preferring some people over others merely on their external appearances, merely on their uh, wealth, merely on the way they look to our eyes. And we saw last time uh, that James gives three reasons for why he encourages people, not only encourages them, commands them not to show partiality. Partiality, James said, and by the way, this is a way of, of just reviewing what we said two weeks ago. Partiality is wrong because it's opposite of God's character. So when we show partiality, we show a different picture than what God is like. So don't show it. Another reason why partiality is, is wrong is because it makes us transgressors of the whole law. In other words, to, to commit the sin of partiality makes us, even though Christians, makes us transgressors of the law. And thirdly, that we should not commit partiality, the sin of partiality, because it will be judged on the final day of judgment. Well, it's interesting that as we look at this whole picture of, of from verse 1 to 13, in which James is sort of confronting Christians of, of the sin of, of partiality, of showing favoritism to people who are well-off um, versus people who are poor. Um, it's, it's interesting to notice that the, the largest part of his argument um, is uh, the largest way in which he's trying to appeal to them not to show partiality is the fact and the argument that Christians are breaking the law of God. It's not only that they oppose and they, they paint a different picture of the character of God, but they actually break the law of God. And in studying through this passage, uh, through a few weeks ago, it, it dawned on me and, and, and asked, what place does the law of God have in the life of the Christian? Does a Christian have an obligation to obey the law of God? So this morning, as we look at this passage about favoritism and against favoritism, I'd like to look this morning just at one of the subpoints of this text and, and just focus on that subpoint, namely the way James uses the argument of the law to argue and confront people not to fall into the sin of favoritism. But I want to look at the way the book of James uses and thinks of the importance of the law for the life of the Christian. So think of the sermon as a subset of the previous sermon I did. This text, a major idea of this text is not about the law. It's about not showing favoritism. But a subset of this argument against showing favoritism is the use of the law in the life of the Christian. So I'd like for us to look at just this point this morning. Uh, here's a few. Uh, if you'd like to take notes, here's a first point I'd like for you to, uh, to notice. We'll have a total of four points this morning. Here's the first one. Notice the high view of the law that James has. Look at verse 8. James says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Friends, did you notice how James describes the law? What adjective he uses for the law? The royal law. The royal law. 
Now, some people think, some, even some commentators, think that the phrase royal law refers only to the commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, in the sense that it is the highest commandment, and thus it is the, the governing law. Now, it's true that the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is part of the greatest commandment that Jesus declared. Uh, Jesus said uh, in Matthew 22, you shall love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the greatest, great and first commandment. And the second to it is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in that sense, this commandment is, is a great commandment. But when James describes the law as a royal law, he is not referring only to this one command, as if this command alone is the royal law. When James uses the phrase the royal law, he really is talking about the commandments of God, all the commandments of God. Actually, if we remember the way James uses the word law in his book, we will notice that James uses the word law as a synonym for the Word of God. Look at verse, uh, chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1, um, we see a contrast between the man who, um, who is just a hearer of the Word, not a doer, and James gives an illustration of what that man is like. He's like a man who looks at his face into a mirror. He looks at it, but immediately, as soon as he leaves the mirror, he forgets what he saw. He forgets what he's like. Such a man is one who, who hears the word but doesn't do it, doesn't put it into practice. In contrast with this man, uh, James tells us about someone else who is looking into, and we would say into the word of God. But no, James says who is looking into the perfect law. Yes, James describes God's word as a law and as a perfect law. And here in James chapter 2, verse 8, James describes the Word of God as a law, again, but as a royal law. Now, the word for royal tells us, that, tells us a following interesting detail, that this law belongs to a king. Royal. It comes from a king. It's a kingly law. And this law characterizes the king and his kingdom. It is the law of his reign. It characterizes the reign of this king. In this sense, the phrase royal law refers to the entire set of commands that God gives as king over his people. Just as the law of a country or the laws of a country represent what, are, what is important for that country, what is important for the citizens of that, of that country to live well, just as the laws of a country tell us something about that country, in the same way, the royal law of God tells us of the character and values, both of God, but also of His kingdom. Well, friends, how often, how often we think of God's commandments as simply rules? Rules that are just a set of rules. Rules that sometimes uh, stand in the way of our enjoyment, of our pleasure, if you will. How often do we think about the commandments of God as just 
a legalistic set of rules. But friends, have you thought about the commands of God as a royal law that reflect the nature and character of the king and of his kingdom? Friends, when we consider the, the commands of God, we are called to reflect his character. The commands of God are royal because they belong to him and they reflect his character and nature and the character and nature of his kingdom. So James describes the law of God very positively as a royal law. And it encompasses all the commandments that God has for his people. Friends, I wonder if you have such a positive view of God's commands in Scripture or of God's commands for your life. Do you have this kind of positive view, the same kind of positive view that James has? What place does the law have in the life of Christians? Remember, the character of the king is reflected in the laws he makes. The character of the kingdom are reflected in the, in the laws of that kingdom. So when we think about the commandments of God, think of them as a reflection of the king and of his reign. A high view of God's commands, of God's law. That's the first point. The second point that we see in, in, in James is that Christians are not excused from obeying the law of God. Christians are not excused from obeying the law of God. There is these days a strange teaching out there that uh, among Christians, um, true, definitely among Christians, that says that Christians have no more obligation to obey God's commandments. Uh, the, the rationale would be something like this. Since Christians are saved through faith, they no longer have obligation towards the moral law of God. Uh, this strange teaching is called antinomianism. Uh, it, it's from two different words. Anti means against. Nomianism is a Greek word from, uh, that comes from law, namos. So antinomianism against the law. So Christians no longer have any responsibility or obligation to follow and obey the commandments of God. This strange teaching is called antinomianism. It is strange, dear friends, uh, because we, it's not true. We will see why. But just, because, just to be clear, and I want to make sure none of us misunderstand, I want to make sure we all are clear that if you're a Christian, obeying, oh, I'm sorry, if you're, if you're a Christian, obeying the law is something we are called to do. If you're not a Christian, obeying the law will not make you a Christian. So being a Christian is something you are called and we are called to do as Christians, to obey the laws of God. But if you're not a Christian, simply starting to obey the laws of God will not make you a Christian. Actually, no one becomes a Christian by starting to obey the laws of God. And this actually makes Christianity to be on, on opposite end with any other religious system that we see in the world. In all other religious systems, especially those that, that have any kind of laws or any kind of regulations, uh, becoming a, a worshiper of that system means you must start obeying 
those laws. You must start conforming your life to those laws. But in Christianity, it's very different because the Christian life is not founded upon our obedience to God's laws. Instead, let me, let me share with you how the Christian life views uh, what it means to become a Christian. If you, especially if you're not a Christian, listen to this. The Christian life is found, founded upon trusting in what God says. Trusting in what God says about Himself. Believing what God says about our corrupt nature, our self-centered ways. Believing what God says about the penalty of our sin, namely death. But that's not all. Believing also what God says about the salvation that He provided for us through Jesus. It is through His Son which He provided, the only begotten Son, Jesus, who came to live a perfect life, never crossed even one of God's commandments, never disobeyed even one of God's commandments, and yet died on the cross under the penalty of God's wrath. He took upon Himself the wrath that sinners deserved so that through His death on the cross and through His resurrection, physical resurrection from the dead three days later, Christ has now freed His people from their sins so that whoever repents and believes in Christ, whoever turns away from their sin and relies and entrusts himself into the hands of Christ, that person is granted the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. And that person is granted the eternal life. That person is granted a, a status of justification, declared righteous before God, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And by relying upon that sacrifice by faith, we are counted righteous, justified before God. Well, friends, in that sense, Christianity is a religion of faith. In that sense, Christianity and the Christian life begins with this act of entrusting and believing what God says about God, about us, about Christ, about our necessary response. And when we believe that, and when our belief takes hold of our hearts, when that faith becomes a part of our heart, oh friends, that faith will start producing actions. But make no mistake, it is the faith that justifies us. It is by faith that we are justified. In that sense, Christianity is not a, a, a system or a religion that, that begins with our obedience. It is a life that begins with faith, and that faith will then produce obedience. Friends, I want to make sure that if you're, if you're not a Christian this morning, or if you think you are, but you have, you're placing your confidence for being justified before God based on both what you believe and what you do, I want to make sure you understand that our obedience does not make us right with God. Our obedience does not make us Christians. As Christians, we start this life of, Christ, of the Christian faith by faith and faith alone. 
Next week, by God's grace, we will look at a famous passage in James chapter 2, verse 14, uh, through, through the end, where we will see faith without works being dead. We'll talk about that next week. But I just want to make sure we understand here that when we think about faith, we are justified before God on faith alone. But once we become Christians, once we respond to God with this, with this faith and repentance, we must understand that God transfers us into the kingdom of dark, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son so that we change our allegiance, we change our loyalties, we belong to a different kingdom and follow a different king who has a different law. As Christians, we begin to live the commandments of our new king, the commandments of the new kingdom. And we don't get a free pass to allow us to act willingly against the royal law of God. As a matter of fact, you look at verse 8 and 9. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But, but, if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, friends, let me ask you, who is James addressing when he says, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers? Who is he addressing? Christians. Christians who are falling in the sin of favoritism. Yes, by falling in the sin of, sin of favoritism, they sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, friends, what would you say if, um, if, uh, if you call Pastor James and would like to have a counseling session with him about a sin problem in your life? Or what would you say if, um, if you're having coffee with Pastor James, you're not calling on him to confess your sins, but uh, in talking to him, he finds out that you're actually living in a particular sin that you haven't, um, you haven't repented of or you haven't exposed yourself and you haven't rep- uh, turned away from it and you keep living in it. And Pastor James would say, oh, if you do that, you sin. And if you do that, you're convicted as a lawbreaker. What would you say to Pastor James? Would you go to talk to him again next time? Would you get counseling from him? What would you say if, if it's not Pastor James, but another fellow Christian in this congregation, who in talking with you um, would, would notice something and would, would bring it out gently, lovingly, would bring it out that, that whatever behavior he noticed um, that is not according to Scripture, he would point it out that it's a sin. And he would say, encourage you to turn away from it. By committing it and staying in it, you are committing a sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor of the law. Would you say that he's a legalist if he confronted you with that? Would you say that he's just one of these Christians who is, who is committed to a set of rules and Christianity is a set of rules? I want you to hear and feel the, the kind of rhetoric that James is bringing to these Christians. And remember, he is not treat, dealing with them about the sin of murder or adultery. He's just dealing with them with the sin of showing favoritism, partiality. We would say it's not a 
big sin. And yet James points all the guns, if you will, uh, the heavy alternative to say, if you do this sin, you become a lawbreaker. James, would you respond to him saying, James, don't you know Jesus has forgiven all our sins? I don't need to worry about those sins anymore. Would you, would you say that to him? Interestingly, James doesn't say that to you or to us. James does not give an answer uh, to the sin of, of favoritism uh, by saying, oh, oh, listen, don't worry about it. It's all covered. No, James brings this accusation, if you will, this confrontation. Friends, let me ask you this. Do you ever think with this category of I've transgressed, I am convicted as a lawbreaker about any of your sins? Does this sentence bring you chills when you try to understand, do you have in your mind a category that even as a Christian, committing a sin makes you convicted as a lawbreaker, or as the ESV has it, convicted by the law as transgressors. James is dealing only with one example of one sin, namely the sin of favoritism, but we could talk about any other sins. And by the, by the way he deals with one sin, he shows us and she wants us as Christians to think how to, real, how to think biblically about our sins. To sin makes us transgressors of the law of God even though we are Christians. To sin makes us transgress the law of God. By the way, James makes this statement twice in the, these few verses. You think I've repeated this point too much already in the sermon? James, in just three verses, repeats it twice and hammers it in, both in verse 9 and then verse 11. The point is, Christian, here's the point. You're not excused. You're not excused from obeying the law of God. You're not excused from following God's commandments. You should not use the excuse, well, Jesus paid for my sins, so I, I'm not going to worry about it too much. I'm not going to lose sleep over it. You should not be willing to disregard God's commands willingly and willfully. And if anyone wants to bring it up to you and, and challenge you through a particular issue, please don't just accuse them of being legalists or committed to a set of rules. We're not excused from obeying the, way, the, the laws of God. Here's the third point. Here's the third point. To break one law is to break it all. To break one law is to break it all. Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. The NIV translates it in this way. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Now, in, in our minds, some of us might assume that God grades our obedience based on a curve system. I'm not sure if we actually think about the curve system, but here's how I see it in people, and I hear this rationale occasion from people. Well, listen, there's people worse than me. Than me. Friends, when you, bring that, when you bring that explanation, what are you saying? You, you are using a curve 
logic, if you will, in the grading of our obedience. There's people worse than me. Or is there, there are other people who do the same thing. I am no different than others who are doing the exact same thing. Friends, when you use this frame, framework of thinking, you really are telling, uh, you are uh, assuming that God is grading, if you will, grading, evaluating your obedience um, based on a curve system. Here's another one. Uh, people assume that God will not actually act against our first or second or third transgression. You know, that God will give us some free passes. If it's really our first breaking of the law, it's no, you know, I'm sure we'll find mercy with God. It's just our first one. Oh, friends, such a view of God is a view of our own making, not of the way God describes himself, not of the way God describes his commandments. To break one of God's laws makes us guilty of breaking the whole law. That's why we become a lawbreaker, even if we break just one of the many laws of God. Look at verse 11. For who, he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. I love how one of the commentators, uh, Alec Motir, uh, gave this illustration that I, I want to give it to you. It was so helpful to, to see as how, how we think about the law of God. He said, the law of God is not like a heap of stones. It's more like a sheet of glass. We could take one stone from the heap and leave the heap intact still. But when you throw a brick through a window, it strikes not only in one place, but fragments the whole glass. The law of God is like the glass. It may hit only at one point, but it cracks the entire glass. Again, James hammers this point home in order to show the gravity of just one sin, the sin of favoritism. The Christian to whom James writes may have thought that as long as they do other things well, as long as they love their neighbor as themselves, as long as they show kindness to some people, as long as they, they, they obey God in the other areas of their lives, they are fine. James says, no. They are not. And I wonder, what sin, what sin do you allow in your life to linger on? If you continue to fight against it, great job. Continue on. Press on. Keep fighting it off. But if you have given up that fight against that particular sin and have found excuses for it, friend, awaken yourself to see how God views even one sin. Perhaps you excuse your sin by saying, others are doing it too. It's not a big deal if I engage in it this one time. Or how many people break the law and they think they're okay just because other people also break it? Or how many people break the law of God thinking that God will be merciful to you on that day of judgment? Perhaps you find the excuse that you're doing so many other things right. Look at how involved you are in church. Look at how many things you're doing for the poor. Look at how many things you're doing for other people. Surely God will let you off with this one sin. Friend, do you tend to put your good deeds and bad deeds in a balance hoping that your good deeds are greater than the bad deeds? Don't deceive yourself. 
God's justice doesn't work that way. One sin outweighs all the good. Friend, if there is at least once in your life which you are finding an excuse for, realize that James would have you know this. You are a transgressor of the law and convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. The, third, the, four, the last point that I want to bring to you this morning is not only that one law, by breaking one law, one law we break it all. The final point is live by the law of liberty. Live by the law of liberty. Notice that James reminds us that we will be judged by this law, and, and he calls it, at, now at the end of this passage, he calls this law not just a royal law, as we saw already, but he calls it as a law of liberty. What does this mean? What does it mean to be called a law of liberty? This is a second time in the letter when James refers to the Word of God as, as a law of liberty. The first time he used it was in chapter 1, in verse 25. In, in chapter 1, this view of the law of God as a law of liberty was associated with a person who actually lived out God's law. Remember the contrast between the man who looked his face in the mirror, the forgetful hearer? In contrast to that man is this man who looks intently into the law, the perfect law of God. And at that point, James defines this, the law, the perfect law, as a law of liberty. So that the law of liberty is associated with a person who's actually living it, the person who's following it. In a similar way here in chapter 2, verse 12, the law of liberty describes God's word for the sake of encouraging us to live by it. Oh, friends, this law is not given to, by God for us to put us down. It's not given to us by God to restrain our liberty. If anything, this law is given by God for us to describe what it means to be free. It's a law of liberty. Again, um, Motier said the beautiful thing about, about the, this phrase. The law is a nature of God expressed in His commandments. When we obey His commandments, then we are living like Him. We are in the image of God. The law is in the image of God. When we bring these two together, we are being ourselves. We are truly free. God's law describes a life of true freedom. Obedience opens a door into the free life. Friends, remember the people of Israel? When did God, when they came out of Egypt... When did God give them the law? Did God give them the law before God took them out of Egypt or after? It was after. And did God say before taking, uh, before taking them out of Egypt, did God say, if you will obey my laws, I will take you out? No. The law of God was given after the freedom from Egypt was accomplished. In that sense, when God brought His people to, to, the, to Mount Sinai, He gave them the law that would characterize them and define what they were to be like as a newly freed, recently freed people. In that sense, the law of God described the freedom that God accomplished for them, and it described the freedom that God wanted them to experience. So friends, when we encourage one another to obey God and to obey His commandments, Realize this, that we are encouraging 
one another to live out in the freedom that God has procured for us. We're encouraging one another to live out in the liberty that God has granted us. But I realize that the world um, around us doesn't think about the commandments of God as freedom. The world around us thinks of the commandments of God as, as limiting our freedom, as limiting our joy, as limiting our good life, missing out on what is truly good according to this world. Now, friends, that may be true only with one big assumption. Those promises of the world are true under one assumption, that we are not created in the image of God. But if we are created in the image of God, and if the laws of God describe the image of God, then for us, following the laws and commandments of God is truly a way to live in the freedom that God has accomplished for us. When we obey the laws of God, we carry out the image of God that God has formed us in. Friends, the New Covenant makes this point very well. As we've read earlier in, this, in the service in Jeremiah 31, God promises that, that in this new covenant that He will make with His people, that He will write His laws. Where? On the hearts. That He will write it on their, in their minds. And God will be their God, and they shall be God's people. And friends, this promise is repeated again in, in Hebrews chapter 10. So that for those who are truly Christians, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit writes these laws in our hearts so that when we hear these commands of God, the hearing the command of God is met with a desire to do it. Now, total transparency here, that's not the only desire of our hearts. There's going to be other desires that will not want to do it. But in the, true, in the one who's, who's truly saved, there is a desire in the heart of a, new, of a Christian, of a true Christian, to obey and hear the commands of God. Oh, friends, because of that new heart that God gives us, we have this confidence, we have the assurance that indeed we are able and desire to live out the commandments of God. Yes, the sinful nature in us will make those desires at war. And we will often fight. And there will be two competing desires in our hearts. If you experience that competition of desires, be assured you are fine. Until we die on this side of heaven, we will see this competition of a desire to obey God and a desire not to obey Him. The, the, the godly desire, the godly nature in us will have those inclinations. The sinful nature that still is in us will fight against it. But the child of God is the one who will seek to nourish the godly nature and forsake the nature of sin. This emphasis of, of encouragement that James gives, that is, is he brings out the, the picture of the judgment of God as a way of encouragement, dear friends. Not as a way of threat, but as a way of encouragement. James encouraged us to live out this law of liberty. Live it out both in the way we speak, live it out in the way we act. Why? Because we will be judged by the law of liberty. This is, this is not a, a terrifying judgment for those who are children of God. On that day of, of judgment, we will be reminded that God has enacted upon our hearts this law of liberty. 
we're encouraged because God has granted us this liberty that we are given all the resources necessary to live out in this liberty. Friend, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you don't have this liberty. You don't have this liberty. You're not the beneficiary of, of the liberty that Christ has procured for us. You are not the beneficiary of a liberty that the Holy Spirit has written upon our hearts when He wrote, when He writes His laws upon our hearts. If you are outside of Christ, you don't have this freedom. That's why, dear friends, we encourage you. If, you're, if you don't have Christ, if you're not a Christian, turn to Him. Respond to Him by repentance and faith so that the Holy Spirit will, will write His laws, God's laws, on your own heart so that you may experience this liberty and know that on that day of judgment, you'll be judged by this law of liberty. So therefore, live today by this law of liberty. Again, I love how Motir says, By the saving work of Christ, we have been given by God a heart that matches the requirements of His laws. Praise be to God. The only reason why Christians can live out and obey the commandments of God is because God has written His laws on our hearts. The only reason why Christians can desire to obey the Word of God is because God has implanted in our own hearts a new nature, a new disposition. Oh, friends, this is what it means to be a Christian. That's not how we become a Christian, but this is what it means to be a Christian. If becoming a Christian is an act of faith, living as a Christian continues to be an act of faith, but now that faith starts to produce works, and we'll see the relation between faith and works next week if the Lord keeps us alive. But I want to remind you the four points we have gone through as we ask this question, what is, the, what is the role of the law in the life of a Christian? Four points. James has a high view of the law. He describes it as a royal law. He describes it as a law of liberty. Second, Christians are not excused from obeying the law of God. Third, to break one law is to break it all. And fourth, the encouragement, live by the law of liberty. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for helping us to understand the seriousness, the gravity, the weightiness of your commands for us as Christians. Father, we realize that we, none of us have become Christians because of our obedience. Father, we praise you for the, for the grace you have given us, the grace of repentance and faith, the grace of a new heart. Father, thank you that you have not just replaced our new heart, but you have reset our new hearts and written on them the code of your law and, and how your law reflects your nature and character. Oh, Father, would you enable your people to delight in your law? Would you enable your people to love your law? Would you enable your people to live out your law so that indeed we may be doers of the word, not hearers only? so that we may be the kind of man that indeed looks intently at your word and not be like a forgetful hearer who looks into the mirror and forgets what he was like. Oh God, make your people, make us, the people gathered in this place here at Park Hills Baptist Church, make us doers of your word so that indeed your gospel may be well represented 
and the power of your transforming grace may be visible in the lives of your people. May you be glorified through us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.